Chapter 14 of the Social History of Smoking. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteers, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ian Hatley. The Social History of Smoking by Geo Apperson, ISO. Chapter 14 Smoking in Church. For thy sake, tobacco, I'd do anything but die. Charles Lamb, Farewell to Tobacco The use of tobacco in churches forms a curious, if short, chapter in the social history of smoking. The earliest reference to such a practice occurs in 1590, when Pope Innocent VII excommunicated all such persons as were found taking snuff or using tobacco in any form in the church of St. Peter at Rome, and again in 1624, Pope Urban the Eighth issued a bull against the use of tobacco in churches. In England, it would seem as if some of the early smokers, in the fullness of their enthusiasm for the new indulgence, went so far as to smoke in church. When King James I was about to visit Cambridge, the Vice Chancellor of the University put forth sundry regulations in connection with the royal visit, in which may be found the following passages that no graduate, scholar, or student of this university presumed to resort to any inn, tavern, alehouse, or tobacco shop at any time during the abode of his majesty here, nor do presume to take tobacco in St. Mary's Church or in Trinity College Hall upon pain of final expelling the university. Evidently, the intention was to make things present for the royal foe of tobacco during his visit. It would appear to be a fair inference from the wording of this prohibition that when the king was not at Cambridge, graduates and scholars and students could resume their liberty to resort to inns, taverns, alehouses, and tobacco shops, and presumably to take tobacco in St. Mary's Church without question. The prohibition in the regulation quoted as smoking in St. Mary's Church referred, it may be noted, to the act which was held therein. Candidates for degrees, or graduates to display their proficiency, publicly maintained these. This performance was turned keeping or holding an act. It is, of course, conceivable that the prohibition, so far as the church and Trinity College Hall were concerned, was against the taking of snuff rather than smoking. But the phrase to take tobacco was at that time quite commonly applied to smoking, and considering that extraordinary and immoderate use of tobacco soon after its introduction, it is not in the least incredible that pipes were lighted at least occasionally, even in sacred buildings. Sometimes tobacco is used in church for disinfecting or deodorizing purposes. The church warden's accounts of St. Peter's Barnstaple staple for 1741 contains an entry paid for tobacco and frankincense burdened the church two shillings six pence sprigs of juniper pits and sweet wood in combination with incense were often used for the same purpose smoking it may be safely asserted was never practiced commonly in english churches even in our own day people have been served smoking not during the service time but in passing through the building in church in some of the South American states, and near home in Holland, 
but in England such desecration has been occasional only and quite exceptional. One need not be surprised at any instance of lack of reverence in English churches during the 18th century, and a few instances can be given of church smoking in that era. Blackburn, Archbishop of York, was a great smoker. On one occasion he was at St. Mary's Church, Nottingham, for a confirmation. The story of what happened was told long afterwards in a letter written in December 1773 by John Disney, rector of Swindleberry, Lincolnshire, the grandson of the Mr. Disney, who at the time of the Archbishop's visit to St. Mary's was incumbent of that church. This letter was addressed to James Granger and was published in Granger's correspondence. The antidote, which he mentioned, wrote the Minister Disney of Swindleberry, is, I believe, unquestionably true. The affair happened in St. Mary's Church at Nottingham when Archbishop Brightburn of York was there on a visitation. The Archbishop had ordered some of the apparators or other attendants, to bring him pipes and tobacco, and some liquor into the vestry for his refreshment, after the fatigue of confirmation. And this coming to Mr. Disney's ears, he forbade them being brought thither, and with a becoming spirit remonstrated with the archbishop upon the impriety of his conduct, at the same time telling his grace that his vestry should not be converted into a smoking room. Another 18th century clerical worthy, the famous Dr. Parr, an inveterate smoker, was accustomed to do what Mr. Disney prevented Archbishop Blackburn from doing. He smoked in his vestry at Hatton. This he did before the sermon, while the congregation were singing a hymn, and apparently both parties were pleased, for Parr would say, My people like long hymns, but I prefer long clay. Robert Hall, the famous bandits preacher, having once upon a time strongly denounced smoking as an odious custom, learned to smoke himself as a result of his acquaintance with Dr. Parr. Parr was such a continuous smoker that anyone who came into his company, if he had never smoked before, had to learn the use of a pipe as a means of self-defense. Hall, who became a heavy smoker, is said to have smoked in his vestry at intervals in the service. He probably found some relief in tobacco from this severe internal pains which for many years he was afflicted. Mr. Ditchfield, in his entertaining book on the parish clerk, tells a story of a Lincolnshire curate who was a great smoker, and who, like Parr, was accustomed to retire to the vestry before the sermon, and there smoke a pipe while the congregation sang a psalm. One Sunday, says Mr. Ditchfield, he had a natural pipe, and Joshua, the clerk, told him that the people were getting impatient. Let them sing another psalm, said the curate. They have, sir, replied the clerk. Then let them sing the hundred and nineteenth, replied the curate. At last he had finished the pipe, and began to put on the black gown but his folds were troublesome, and he could not get it on. I think the devil's in the gown, muttered the curate. I think he be dry, replied old Joshua. The same writer, 
and his companion volume on the old-time parson mentions that the vicar of Connerington in 1692 found that it was actually customary for people to play cards on the communion table, and that when they chose the church wardens, he used to sit in on the sanctuary smoking and drinking, the clerk gravely saying, with the pipe in his mouth, that such had been their custom for the last sixty years. Although probably the conduct of the Codrington parsoners was unusual, it is certain that in the seventeenth century smoking at meetings held, not in the church itself, but in the vestry, was common. The church warden's accounts of St. Mary's Leicester, 1665-1666, through 1666, record in the expenditure, and bearing tobacco from first alas, seven shillings, ten pence, and those of St. Alphage, Landrois, for 1671, there are the entries for pipes and tobaccos in the vestry, two shillings, and for a gross of pipes, at several times two shillings. In the next century, however, the practice was modified. The St. Alphonse accounts for 1739 of the entry ordered that there be no smoking nor drinking for the future in the vestry room during the time business is doing, on pain of forfeiting one shilling and since in day expected. From this it would seem fair to infer, one, that there was no objection to the lighting of pipes in the vestry after the business of the meeting had been transacted, and two, that on the sensing day, for some inscrutable reason, there is no prohibition at all of smoking and drinking. Readers of Sir Walter Scott will remember in the, the Heart of Bendelton one curious instance of 18th century smoking in church, and a Scottish Presbyterian church, too. Jenny Dean's beloved Reuben Butler was about to be ordained to the charge of the parents of Nightarlite, Dumbartonshire. The congregation were duly seated after prayers. Dukes David Deans, occupying a seat among the elders and the officiating minister, had read his text preparatory to the delivery of his hour, in a quarter sermon. The redoubtable Duncan of Knockdunder was making his preparations also for the sermon. After rummaging the leathern pert which hung in front of his petticoat, he reproduced a short tobacco pipe made of iron, and observed almost aloud, I have forgotten my spoochin, Leighton, gung down the clinking, and bring me up a penny worth of twist. Six arms, the nearest within reach, presented with an obedient start, and as many tobacco pouches to the man of office. He made choice of one with a nod of acknowledgment, filled his pipe, lighted it with the assistance of his spits of flint, and smoked with infinite composure during the whole time of the sermon. When the discourse was finished, he knocked the axes out of his pipe, replaced it in his brawn, returned the tobacco pouch or splinter to its owner, and joined in the prayers with decency and attention. David Deans, however, did not at all prove this irreverence. It did not become a wild Indian, he said, much less a Christian and a gentleman to sit in the kirk puffing tobacco reek as if you were in a change house. The date of the incident was 1737, 
but rather Sir Walter Scott had any authority in the fact for this characteristic performance of Knockdunder or not. It is certain that any such occurrence in a Scottish Kirk must have been extremely rare. Knockdunder's pipe, according to Scott, was made of iron. This was an infrequent material for tobacco pipes, but there are a few examples in museums. In the Belfast Museum, there is a cat's iron tobacco pipe about 18 inches long, the bowl of a branch pipe, and a pipe about 6 inches in length made of seed iron. Another 18th century instance of smoking in church, taken from historical fact and not from fiction, is associated with the church of Hayes in Middlesex. The parish registers of that village bear witness to repeated disputes between the parson and bell ringers and the parishioners generally in 1748 to 1754. In 1752 it was noticed that a sermon had been preached after a funeral to a noisy congregation. On another occasion, says the register, the ringers and other inhabitants disturbed the service from the beginning of the prayers to the end of the sermon by ringing the bells and going into the gallery to spit below. While at another time, a fellow came into church with a pot of beer and a pipe and remained smoking in his own pew until the end of the sermon. Going to church at Hayes in those days must have been quite an exciting experience. No one knew what might happen next. In the remote ingrates and wells, parishes, men seem occasionally to have smoked in churches without any intention of being irreverent, and without any consciousness that they were doing anything unusual. Canon Atkinson, in his delightful book, Forty Years in the Moorland Parish, tells how, when he first went to Danby and Cleveland, then very remote from the great world, and had to take his first funeral, he found inside the church the parish clerk, who was also parish schoolmaster, by the way, sent in the sunny embracer of the wet's window with his hat on and comfortably smoking his pipe. A correspondent of the Times in 1895 mentioned that his mother had told him how she remembered seeing smoking in a Welsh church about 1850. The communion table stood the aisle, and the farmers were in the habit of putting their hats upon it, and when the sermon began they lit their pipes and smoked, but without any idea of reverence. In the Axis church about 1861, a visitor had pointed out to him various nooks in the gallery where short pipes were stowed away, which he was informed the old men smoked during service and several of the pews in the body of the church contained triangular wooden spittoons filled with sawdust. A clergyman has put it on record that when he went in 1873 as a curate in charge to an out-of-the-way Norfolk village, at his first early celebration he arrived in church about 7.45 a.m., and he says, to my amazement, saw five old men sitting around the stove the knave with their hats on, smoking their pipes. I expostulated with them quite quietly, but they left the church before service and never came again. I discovered afterwards that they had been regular communicants, and that my predecessor always distributed offertory 
to the poor present immediately after the service. When these men, in the course of my remonstrance, found out that I was not going to continue the custom, they no longer cared to be communicants. Nowadays, if smoking takes place in church at all, it can only be done with intentional irreverence, and it is painful to think that even at the present day, there are people in whom a feeling of reverence and decency is so far lacking as to lead them to desecrate places of worship. The vicar of Lancaster, at his Easter vestry meeting in 1913, complained to bank holiday visitors to the parish church who ate their lunch, moped, and wore their hats while looking around the building. It is absurd to suppose that these people were unconscious of the impropriety of their conduct. End of chapter 14